Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, you'll hear my interview with Aaron Larger Kaplan. Aaron is a classical guitar player who we don't get a lot of those anymore, do we? Well, he's not just a classical guitar player. He's an award-winning classical guitar player who also teaches at the Boston Conservatory. You're going to hear us talk about his journey from uh, <laughs> not knowing what he wanted to do to picking up a classical guitar or hearing it first and then deciding this is what he had to do and how it all came together, which is fascinating. I always talk about how there is no straight line in any creative journey or in any life. And if anybody proves it, Aaron does. And, uh, we spoke, he's in Boston, but he travels all over the world. And like me, he likes good food. And we talk about all of that stuff. Do you like this podcast? Do you want to get it on a regular basis? Subscribe. Do you want to share that you like it? Well, you can do that through social media, but you can also review it uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us as many stars as you can stand. We'd really appreciate that. Um, that is the whole story. If you have any questions about Aaron or me or suggestions for the show, you can go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. Leave me a message, but right now, sit back, relax. Enjoy my conversation with Aaron Larger Kaplan. Aaron Larger Kaplan, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I am so excited to actually meet you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's, yeah, we've, we've, I guess you could say, charactered a lot to each other. <laughs> we've tweeted. We'll just say it. Uh, you and I, I don't know how long we've been Twitter friends, but what happens for me with Twitter is uh, when I was first a literary agent, I'd have a lot of people trying to be really friendly because they wanted me to represent them. And then when I stopped being a literary agent, I lost hundreds if not thousands of followers because they weren't really friends. And that's a lesson. Um, but, and I don't know how long we've known each other, you had absolutely nothing to get from me. And we actually just had a lot in common in that we are Renaissance guys. We love music. I, I chose not to go to conservatory for cello, but I was a, um, I lettered in cello, which is strange, but true. And I was an all-state cellist when I grew up. And I was set to go to New England Conservatory. I was thinking about it. I was also thinking about Pace University, not Pace, Purchase, excuse me. Purchase, yeah. But I just didn't want to practice cello six to eight hours a day. <laughs> and then there's nothing wrong with someone who does. It just... It wasn't for me. And I taught myself how to play guitar, which was far more interesting to me, not the kind of guitar you play. And we'll totally get into that. But the <laughs> kind that I had hoped and didn't really work out would drive women toward me as it was nothing. Not, uh, not even a fire or acid. Nothing would work. But that's another yeah, story. Yeah, but by the time you're... I tell my students, I, I one of my first jobs was teaching at a middle school group guitar class and they would say, so do you play guitar to get girls? And, you know, 13, 14 year old, all boys, private school. And I turned to one of them. I said, look, by the time you're good enough, 
you'll know better than that. So wow, what wisdom you imparted <laughs> on them, which I'm I don't sure know if it did ignored. anything, but <laughs> you know, it, I I actually went to New England Conservatory and played with quite a few cellists. It's the second best instrument there is, and <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of it. <laughs> I yeah, cello. I, I I love cello. It, it is it is gorgeous, and you know we yeah I I think I just started following you on Twitter. You you know. I liked what you were saying and, you know, I think your um, point of view was informative and yet, you know, you, you, you were witty at times. So that, that does help. That's so, good. That's on the record. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Here and there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got the gift of whiskey yesterday. So thank you. Congrats. Um, so let me back up a second and say right now you're in Boston where I lived for 20 years. Oh, um, well, I lived in Natick for the most part. Yeah, it's not really Boston, but it, you know, it's close if, enough. If they have an accent. We'll give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's far more Boston than Brooklyn, which is where I'm currently speaking yeah, to you from. Um, but are you from the Boston area? I couldn't no, get that information. I'm, a, I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. I grew up in uh, Colorado in the suburbs. And then I started playing, uh, well, I played electric guitar in uh, kind of middle school, high school, wanted to be a rock star. And then I, heard, I saw a video of Andres Segovia playing in my Spanish class, a video, he was already dead. And yeah. um, he was playing Asturias, the tune by the doors. Da, 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 bum, ba, da. The doors, Robbie Krieger used the theme in Spanish Caravan. And me being, you know, 15, 16 years old, I would, knew every song of the doors. And I looked well, at. I got, I got to stop you because yeah. the Doors. I bought Doors records when they came out. So you can tell by my gray hair. You, my friend, did, the Doors were dead or half dead, yes. literally. But I love that you love the Doors. And I just want to say, good music and Doors, no pun intended, and Doors and the Doors, for better or worse, whatever you want to say. I, we're taking a sidetrack here. I know for a fact, and I forget his name, the keyboard player was right. very much a jazz head. Yeah, yes. Um, Ray Manzarek. Thank Same. you. That's was, it. Nice. And yeah. Ray, Ray was a huge jazz head. Yeah. And that influenced them, as well as Krieger being really a classical guy. Yeah, he <laughs> played fingerstyle. And they had, uh, what I loved about The Doors, since the get-go, when I first heard them, they had a different sound. They weren't just loud. Um, they weren't just distorted guitars, which, you know, I grew up, my, I have older siblings, so I grew up basically with 80s rock and, you know, from Styx to Twisted Sister and to Beastie Boys, you know, that was like... And then I started playing guitar and I just fell in love with uh, classic rock, Hendrix, Led Zeppelin and The Doors. And Robbie Krieger just had a, they, the, the whole thing had an appeal. And I, I have to give credit where it's due. I think the movie The Doors came out when I was like 13 or 14. That and, was a big movie when it came out. First yeah. of all, Oliver Stone directed it. It yeah. starred America's sweetheart, Meg Ryan, as a drug-addicted yeah. uh, groupie, yeah. and Val Kilmer as the Lizard King. Look it up, kids. Um, and I, I was changed by that film 
uh, dramatically. Yeah, I, I very much, I, I thought I could do that lifestyle. And, <laughs> you know, I, I do have the leather pants and I've performed in them many times, but I, I was pretty quick to find out that my liver was not going to uh, do very well. And then when I started playing classical guitar, I realized that one, I was learning to learn read music at 15, 16 years old. I mean, I had played a little clarinet, but, you know, a Jewish boy from, you know, it's what you do. You play clarinet. And um, I started reading music and I realized I actually needed my brain cells. And so I, I pretty quickly had to uh, clean up the act. As string guys also, we want our fingers to do what our brain is saying. We don't want a lot of lag. We don't want a conversation between them. Really? I, I want to back up a second because part of what I do in this podcast is I, I show people there's no straight line in a creative life or in any life, really. And that you also don't have to magically be born to the right parents. And you can, there's lots of ways to success in an artist's and creator's life. So Denver, first of all, not known as a big Jewish center in my experience, although I've been to Denver several times, love it. Although, of course, I'm a Boulder fan more and actually have relatives in Durango which by the Colorado, for those who've never been, is kind of like a bunch of states in yeah. one because, you know, I, yeah, plus like each city has a very distinct political and cultural character. Denver's kind of middle of the road in my experience. It's a big city. There's a lot to offer there. The baseball stadium's great. Brown Palace is nice and whatever. But um, It's but close to the Rockies. That's the best part. Right. But, you know, one hour away is Boulder, which is like the Greenwich Village uh, or Cambridge, if you will, of, uh, yeah, of Colorado. Naropa is there. CU Boulder. So you have 35,000, 40,000 students, plus many uh, military um, defense contractors are based in Boulder. Oh, so I didn't know that. Oh, it is a very... It's a very interesting place because you you do have this kind of... Le at least when I was growing up, it was very much leftover hippie uh, place going on. That's and then, the vibe I got. Yeah. And then there's a huge football um, dichotomy going on. And I used to go to concerts on the weekends, go up there. And it was definitely the more exciting of the two places, Denver versus Boulder. And, you know, there is a Jewish population out of uh in denver in in colorado is it it nothing matches boston or uh, new york but you know when i when i wanted to play music or i guess go to college it was really um you know i saw boston as a half step to europe and i just like that's where i'm gonna go and i came to Boston for school and it was a complete life-changing cultural change that I hadn't expected. And then I met my wife who's French and rather than move to France, we ended up moving in together and getting married, hence my wife. And um, I've lived in Boston for 25 years, something like that. So they may think of you as Bostonian. For people no. who don't know, Boston is incredibly parochial, I think is a good word yeah. to use. They view you an outsider unless you were born there. Even if you bought property and you've been there for decades, I was never thought of as from native, even though 
I was a, a political official that was elected by people, but they still thought of me as an interloper. It's actually very interesting. Right now we have a mayoral race and one of the candidates is not from Boston and the other one's trying to play it up. And I really think it's going to backfire because this idea of pure Bostonian is just, it really irks me. I mean, I know I live in Dorchester. I can do the accent. I can do it all. I've been around. I, you know, I don't have family in official places. So that, that is a right. But, you know, people from Boston, it's a, it's a city that has been so segregated and yet people perpetuate it. They're like, we have to break down these walls, but don't change my neighborhood. I'm like, well. <laughs> Yes. There's a, what is it? Nini, not in my neighborhood is yes. a very big, yes. and, and you know, for people hold up Boston as this ideal, this Athens of America, but yes. when you live there, it is incredibly racist. Sorry, Boston. It also, is. Uh, the church has this bizarre power over people. You know, recently speaking of France, um, it was just uh, in the papers that they discovered that the church, yeah, the Catholic church is, uh, they figured out that over 300,000 adolescents or uh, children whatever, were sexually abused over the last, I don't know what period of time. I think it was 40 or 50 years. Yeah, I mean. that's basically the Catholic Church is a serial rapist. But, you know, I don't want to get us in tons of trouble oh. here. My point is, though, when I was living in Boston and the stuff was coming out there, which they yeah. talk about in that movie Spotlight, the Cardinal in Boston, Cardinal Law, mysteriously left Boston and went to uh, the- Rome. He was Rome. appointed to a position in Rome. And oops, and Daisy, he's gone and no one can yeah. talk to him. I mean, it's just, but you can't, you can't fight that Catholic thing that lives in Boston. It's really, and- There's, there, yeah. on, a, on a happy note, there are a lot of people who lost, um, Belief, not belief in the church, in the religion, but started questioning the church. And I know quite a few people who have left their churches and will not go back. They're still very Catholic, but they have, they're appalled and they have every right. And the sadly, Boston took some things from Europe it shouldn't, which shouldn't have, which is this need to have religion intertwined with every aspect of city life. And that's where, when I talk to my parents, they sit there and they're like, I, I'll tell them about a zoning issue or trying to get a permit for something. And they're like, this is exactly what we thought about Boston. It's all, this is why everyone left and went West. And I'm like, yeah. Pretty much. You know, they wanted straight streets with street signs and they wanted a permitting process that didn't require that you give a son to the city. You know, that's. Yeah, we're, we're going to I'm going to bring us back, though, to <laughs> you coming to Boston. So I want to back up a second. Yeah. Most like we talked about most kids, I taught myself how to play guitar in high school when my mom got a classical guitar, at least not very expensive. And when I mean classical for people at home, basically there's two types of what we call acoustic guitars. Okay. The standard one you see in pop and country music has steel strings or metal strings, and it has very bright sound and it should have a steel reinforced neck because 
the tension on steel strings on a wooden instrument is tremendous. You will snap that thing in half if you don't have a steel neck. Okay, now when it comes to classical music, originally, and sorry, my vegan friends, they used literally gut strings um, and they called them cat gut. I don't know if they were always from cats, they might've been cows, uh, but they were literally made from the guts of animals since then. Uh, I don't even think they, they might, some might do it, I don't know, but nylon is the thing. You can, you can get gut strings, you can get synthetic gut strings. And now we use the wonderful DuPont invention that, you know, <laughs> Litters the globe, nylon. Yeah, um, I don't want to. I, I mean, there's just so many things to get lost in, but I hear, I hear you. But yeah, nylon. And so when you're listening to that, and usually they have a wider, flatter neck. Um, there are other differences, which I'm sure you can. Uh, just for the purposes, so people can follow along, it has a what I'll call a warmer sound uh, because of the nylon over steel. And it, you know, we talked about cello before. I feel like classical guitar like cello, those are the two instruments I think of that have the most, the timber or timbre of a human voice. Mm, yeah. Pretty close, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, what, I think every instrument is trying to uh, it, uh, bring out the vocal elements. Um, we always wanna say singing qualities um, because we can't, and really our instrument, our first instrument is always the voice. So yeah, we want, we, we want it to sound beautiful and warm and have uh, illicit emotion. And a guitar can do that. A cello can do it. You, by having a cellist or a bowed instrument, has the ability to make a note last longer. As a We call that sustained boys and girls. When electric guitar people have two ways of doing that. There's usually a pedal that sustains, but there's this magnificent little device called an Ebo. Yes. <laughs> which nobody uses anymore. But I saw when I saw Blondie, uh, uh, Chris Stein, who's married to Deborah Harry. And by the way, I have more trivia in my brain over this crap. <laughs> I'm revealing, but uh, he used to use the Ebo in concert, which is this little thing that you hold and it makes the it's string vibrate. magnetic. And it is used in contemporary music. You don't hear it in pop music, but you rarely hear a guitar in pop music now. So we do have tricks we use a, a thing called tremolo, which on the guitar is just repeated notes. So we'll do, um, and it helps when you're in tune. With nylon, this does happen, but we'll do, so like a sustain. We'll play the right. note really fast. I'm amazed with your right hand, by the way. I just want to say, as a guy who uses a flat pick, and I'm pretty good at it, you know, I'm good at, you know, folk and rock with a flat pick. But I never grew out my right hand's fingernails. And that is a thing, you can tell a classical guitar player because when they pay for anything or do anything, <laughs> their hand comes out and you're like, what the hell? Yeah, and, so um, you wonder, you go cocaine or something else? <laughs> I think that the years of cocaine are uh, thinking about that stuff is over. <laughs> but uh, but you know, just as an aside, what mm -hmm. is what is that like? That you, you, is it just a normal thing? You're like, oh yeah, I keep them long because they're part of my you know, yeah you know, my artistry. You know, when I started playing classical, you know, I draw, I put the pick in between my finger on my electric at first and mm -hmm. started plucking, and then I found a teacher 
and he's, you know, and I had read some magazines at the time and they said, you had to grow your nails. So I started growing my nails and I played sports. So I, I was playing rugby and, you know, hanging out with friends and I'd wear a glove and every day I'd get ridiculed. And, you know, I got curly hair. I'm used to being ridiculed since like middle school days. So, um, it's you know, long too, by the way, you have yeah, long curly hair. It, it is now long curly hair. I got the 19th century, uh, ro roving musician. Going and the beard. There. Actually, you got the 60s rock and roll guy. Well, that there, yes, we could say that too. They're kind of very similar. The, those two epochs of uh, poets, roving poets and going around and versus the 60s musicians of bohemian life. Sure. Know. I mean, there was the Victorian era when they hearkened back to aesthetics and they had women literally do something called a tableau vivant, which is French. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're welcome, people. Uh, a living, they would like pose and just stand there. Yeah. Where we, by the way, if you thought this podcast had anything to do with law, <laughs> and you're like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? You can go to Eric, you could go to, is, sorry, is that really legal.com? You can leave yes. me a, a message saying what the hell, or if you, if you enjoyed it, or if you, whatever. Anyway. Um, yeah, back, and at one time, at one time in the Renaissance, the, er, the, the early Renaissance musicians, uh, famously John Dowland, uh, who was a lute player at the time in the the courts, the lute players were paid an equivalent of what we pay NBA players now. They would be, they were major. You would trade court musicians. It was like, it, it was a serious, that was the heyday. You know, we look back at the 60s with recordings and all this, like, no. I wonder if that's why they call it lute. Yeah. I wonder if that's why they call it lute. Doubt it, but hey, man, he's making good money. It's not loot money. But. I love it. I, I love it. That's actually, I'm gonna have to go with that one. I'm gonna steal that. One. Absolutely, it's my gift to you. So, so you're starting to play classical guitar. My memory, again, I'm older than you, is there were people who would teach other people how to play guitar, but guitar was kind was frankly mostly a self taught thing. You'd buy a book of chords, mm -hmm. the Mel Bay book. Yeah. And you would learn, you know, you'd start doing your three chord songs, maybe four or five. If you were like really adventurous, you throw some minors in there. Yeah, you'd yeah. avoid the bar chords until you felt like you could handle it and then do that. And uh, gradually you basically just listen. My experience was I'd listen to the radio. There was radio then, boys and girls, or I'd buy a record and I would play along as close as I could and try to teach myself stuff. And that was the extent of it. There were some kids who had guitar lessons, but they were few and far between. I didn't have the experience of classical guitar lessons. Is that something that you sought out that your parents supported you with? Uh, or uh, well, how did that happen? It's kind of funny. You know, I had played electric and my stepbrother played drums. So we would play together here and there. And I was a horrible rhythm guitarist. I'd be like, Unless there was a singer singing, I couldn't keep track of how many times we'd done something. And I'd be like, what chord are we on? And I'd just, I'd space out. And you'd fall I'd, off the bridge. Yes. Yeah, I'd fall off usually before the bridge. So the, um, when I was, about, I heard Andres Segovia at the end of my sophomore year. And I said, you know, that's interesting. And I, my older brother had played some piano 
And I was like, I want to do more. And so I mentioned it to my stepmom and a guy, you know, universe works in mysterious ways. A guy came and interviewed at a school she was teaching at. And part of his interview, he handed over a CD. He had played classical guitar and he was retiring from touring. He was in his mid thirties and he wanted to just settle down. And he became my, I, he was the only classical guitarist I'd ever met. And he literally stuck a book in front of me and said, this is Bach and your Randy Rhodes is nice, but this is a different type of slur and you're going to learn how to do this. And after, uh, you know, six months, he said, what are your plans? Cause I was now a junior in high school and he said, I said, well, you know, I guess maybe go to school for music. I and, want to enter the lucrative yeah, yeah. world. Of yes. <laughs> Well, and, you know, so my, you asked them, were my parents supportive? You know, they paid for those lessons, which was great. But I, they had no inkling that I wanted to be a professional musician. And I went to Boston. We have a similar culture. Sorry to interrupt you. But like when you grow up as a Jewish kid, wherever you are, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's a Northeast thing. But it was like, well, music is fine, but you need something that puts food on the table. I'm taught, I swear to God, I'm channeling my mother. And um, thanks, mom. And, um, you know, I was pointed at law school and resisted it even after I went. And then actually later found, I loved it. I loved being a lawyer and a musician. But anyway, so wait, I'm interrupting. I mean, my my parents, I'm number four in my family. So by the time I, I came around, my parents were not like, they, they had given up on you're going to do this type of thing. They, they, that didn't work out very well. So I kind of got in under the radar. I went to Boston university for a year for music and I'm great school, great school for music, great school. And, but I was the only guitarist. And so I would be the first to practice and I'd be the last to practice. And I did an audition at the New England Conservatory for a summer festival uh, with the teacher, David Leisner, and he liked me. It was a good audition. And I said, could I transfer? And I literally filled out an application that day. Wow. And I went on spring break, came back, and they said, you have to come audition for the other teacher. I got in and I called my parents and said, I'm going to a different school next year. And I, I wouldn't say there was happiness in their voice, they were like, what? Like Resignation? Yeah, you know, I, let, I'll put it, I got hired by Boston Conservatory, um, probably 2010, I taught there for four or five years. And when that happened, that was like, oh, yeah, my son teaches at the conservatory. So- oh, By the way, for people who don't know, it's called Boco when you're in the know, the Boston Conservatory. And I have a ton of friends who went there. It That place has a tremendous program for yeah. theater people, for, yeah. for any kind of performing art stuff. And I actually studied voice uh, later in my life and did audition stuff with Todd. Oh my God, sorry, Todd, I'm forgetting your name. He was a musical director at the New Rap in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, where I did Into the Woods. And yeah, yeah. Ta- I can't remember Todd's name, but he's a great piano player, great teacher. Mm-hmm. You might know who I'm talking about. Maybe you don't. Yeah, you uh, I know his name once yeah, I saw it. But it is now Boston Conservatory at Berkeley. 
Berkeley, uh, they merged or Berkeley took them in. And just so people know, you mean the Berkeley School of Music, which yeah. is located in the back bay on Mass Ave and like Newbury or something around there, right? About a block. They're, they're literally adjacent to each other. So All right. Not Berkeley, not University of California, Berkeley, where my wife went. Oh, it's a good school, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, but yeah. different ballgame. Anyway, sorry, please. So, so yeah. So New England, you're, so you were New England Conservatory. Yes. And I, I mean, how long a process, you get a degree after four years? You so I, I did a year at BU and then I did four at uh, New England Conservatory. So I did kind of my last year was basically a master's type of thing. But then um, after I graduated, I met a Russian immigrant whose son I had gone to school with. And he lived in Dorchester and a uh, three decker. And I was at his house twice a week, three to six hours a week, and lessons for seven years while starting out this career. And I, he became basically my, in Russian, they say it's like a father-son relationship when you have a teacher like this. And um, without him, yeah, there, there, was, there would be no me now. Well, it's interesting, you know, you can go to college for something or even a graduate school for something. But the reality, my experience is, whether it's law or cello or guitar, you really learn once they let you out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that- I, yes. And I, I think this is a very important point. I, I try and tell this to my students at the University of Massachusetts. This is opening a door it, it, and it's a creek, like a little bit of light. Because a semester's 13 to 15 weeks long. You don't study so with someone for a year. You studied with them for half a year, pretty much, a little more. And that it's an hour a week, maybe two. That that's not an apprenticeship. I had an apprenticeship with uh, Dmitry Gloryachev, is his name. And the and I think this is one reason why in the arts you see people who move in a familial way. They, their parent did something, so they teach the, the children. Same in business. You know, we pass on what we know. And so if you're a parent, you're a cellist or a string player or a pianist, and you have a kid who's like, ah, I like music, we pay attention to that. You know, that's, that, it would be in our nature. We know what that road looks like. You need to do this. You need to learn how to love your metronome like a member of the family. Or even better. I mean, I, I, I think there's a whole cultural issue in America, as opposed to certain European countries. Even when it comes to things like making cars or being a baker, yeah. they have apprenticeship as an automatic. I have a friend who lives in Switzerland who owns several bakeries, and here in America, you'd think, oh, you know, I'll work in a bakery for a while. It's like, no, these people, this is their life. Yeah. And they apprentice to be a baker. And then you go to Switzerland and you get some baked goods and you're like, this is the greatest thing I've ever had. Yeah, because yeah. these people are committed to greatness. There's, yeah. like, there's a difference in everything. When everything you do matters, if you're a baker or a guitar player, you know, by the way, I feel like being a classical cellist taught me so many things. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I learned how to be on time. 
because not because when rehearsal starts at nine in the morning, that doesn't mean you show up at nine in the morning. Right. That means you already got there, you tuned up, you rosined your bow, you warmed up, you sat in your seat and you're waiting for the maestro for the downbeat. And if you're not there, you, they may not let you, they may not let you play that day. Right. I, and and that, that helped me with being on time for the law, helped me for when I was an actor, I was never late for a rehearsal. You know, I was not one of those people running in going, oh, I'm so sorry, the train. It's like, you just factor it in. You just right. get, be early. Your life becomes being early at things. Is that- well, I mean, Life is not, our education system has changed. Life is not a multiple choice. There is no multiple choice. You, you and then think about how many things in life, in school, do you actually have, you, when no matter what happens at the end of the day, if you can't sing in key, you don't pass the class. There aren't classes like that. I had classes like that. I had a 15-minute final every semester for four semesters where I had to sing solfege in key, conducting with the proper syllables. If I screwed up two of the examples, that three-credit course was a fail, and I had to redo it. And I can tell you, there... there we, we talk about like, oh, we don't want to stress our students. Put people under pressure. When you have a mortgage payment that needs to be paid and you have insurances, you're dealing with life issues, your car break, you say, well, there's no excuse. It just has to get done. And that, if, if anything, the, that type of teaching is, it, it has taught me that, yeah, I can do it. And at the end of the day, I tell my students, when you're on stage and you succeed, it has nothing to do with me. You're on stage. You've done it. And if you fail, that's on you. And if you want to do better, that means you're human. And yeah. this is the element. I mean, where in life are we taught this? We're, I mean, let's, if we want to look at corporations, hey, I screwed up. I just spilled a billion gallons of oil. Um, mea culpa. Um, please donate at the end of the year. And, you know, we don't, there is no responsibility. Whereas music, my God, if I play out a tune, the YouTube comments, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't perform during that cultural time period. Although I did some off-Broadway, they got reviewed and I, I was fine, but some of my colleagues weren't, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, but doing, well, doing stand-up is another example of immediate feedback. Yeah. And when it doesn't work, oh man, does it not work. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I would say it also, you know, it can cut both ways in relationships. How, how do you feel that, how does it affect you as a husband being a musician? My, my wife uses it for, uh, for our better of our relationship. Let's put it that way. Just, you know, she'll listen to this. Um, you know, if I don't put away something, you know, she's very much, you know, this is going to show in your music. You need to be exact because you need to be exact in your music. You know, do you treat your guitar this way? You know, uh, I, yeah, I mean, so she's right. That's the, she, that's the thing. That's, that's what's annoying. Like she's a hundred percent right. <laughs> oh, God bless. What does she do for a living? Uh, she does uh, body work. She's a healer. That's oh, uh, that's awesome. And as a musician, we forget this, but every musician has that look on your face. Um, I had met her because I had damaged my shoulder playing sports in high school and I'd gotten to a point where I was ready to drop out. 
of conservatory. And she said she could fix my shoulder that didn't heal right. And I laughed at her, but I had been to all these doctors and my dad was a pediatrician. You know, I, I knew the circle and they said they could shave it. And she said she could fix it. And so I turned to a friend of mine. I said, she can fix my shoulder and I could marry her. And right, I, I've had body workers, but I haven't married any of them. None of them was attractive enough to me. So congratulations. <laughs> and she's French. She is French. Yes. And she, we, we get along very well. Of course, we've oh, been great. just celebrated uh, 19 years officially of marriage. You do not seem old enough to <laughs> have been married for 19 years. So congratulations. I remember when Beastie Boys came out. So, you know, I, I may look young, but I, I do, you know. Uh, you know what's funny? Side story. My name is Eric Rubin. And of course, the Beasties were produced by a guy named Rick Rubin. From yes. I was once pitching music. I've had a long career with music. <laughs> I, exactly. I, I made a call following up on something that I sent to somebody. And I got sent to the president of the company on the phone. And I was like, how did that? And then all of a sudden, he realized it was not Rick Rubin. And I got put on hold and sent back out into the wasteland, never to make it to the inner circle again, at least that company. And I, it took me a while to figure out what happened because they didn't, nobody owned their mistake. No, but no. then someone yeah. was held responsible. I bet. Oh, I somebody got this, whacked around. This peon talked to me. My <laughs> oxygen was wasted. Yeah. Record companies. Oh my God. All right. Well, I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, being a performer during the pandemic, I, I went to your website, of course, and I saw you've had a lot of online performances. Mm -hmm. um, I would think that, I mean, what, how has that been for you? I, as a, the kind of performing I do, which usually involves some kind of comedy or interaction with the audience, I feel like I would have a harder time doing online performing, but I, I don't know. I haven't, done a lot of it i've been doing the podcast <laughs> but for you, do you are you how has that been um at first it was odd um you know the nerves of playing in front of a, a video you know a recording device is always very different than playing live and it's a very different energy but you know, there's i'm always playing for someone I mean, I, I hate to sound cheesy, but there's a visualization process. And it, I'm, I, even if I don't know if someone's there for sure, I, I'm still going to give my best for it. It is audio dealing with technology is very stressful. I always had to have a wingman or two uh, working the computer or dealing with tech stuff. Um, but at the same time, I loved not having to fly places. Um, sure, and I, when you're married, I had the same thing. Uh, yeah. uh, I really don't like leaving my wife. I, I don't know if you're like me. I like, I or, I'm already married. I'm not looking for anybody. So, right. you know, I, being in a strange hotel is no fun. I just like do room service and go to bed. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I, I practice and I'm like, yay, that's it. Um, and traveling with a guitar is always stressful. Um, I do, you know... Being live on stage, there's nothing, nothing as amazing as that. Um, I have but, to agree with you. I mean, yeah, having done a variety of things, yeah, it's that, the best. That type of interaction with an audience, even if 
I, you know, I'm playing contemporary music that is very cerebral. I know when the audience is listening. I know when they're picking up stuff. So that conversation that's happening when it's online, you know, I, I've done stuff where I can see the audience where, you know, it's through Zoom I, and you, know, you see the hand waves at the, I think for the time it was the best there could be. And I was fine with it. I did that's probably great. 15 or 16 events. I did one in India, which I wasn't going to go to fly to India for a 10 minute performance. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a couple of days each way, basically. Yeah. And it's so, exhausting. Yeah. And my European fans and friends got to see me play probably 10 or 11 times. And that usually was once or twice a year. So the per the pluses, considering the context of where the world was, it was okay. Um, will it change? Probably. I hope that there's some form of streaming going on because I loved being in touch with people. Um, I have found Zoom to be amazing. I have friends. This mm -hmm. is not a brag. It's just true. I have friends literally all over the world. I've seen my friends in Canada every week. My friends yeah. in Hong Kong, in Basel, Switzerland, in Cologne, Germany, like everywhere. And it's, I feel more in touch with them because of Zoom and yeah. love it. I used to go to Germany twice a year. I haven't been in a while. So I, I, I agree with you. Now, I haven't been performing on Zoom, uh, but... I've been doing court stuff on Zoom, and frankly, I preferred it. Uh, but yeah. I, I, you know, travel time and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Zoom has been amazing. By the way, just as an aside, I want people to know they can find out more about you and see where you're doing your thing at alcguitar.com. That's A L C, like Aaron Larger Kaplan. Guitar, all one word. Dot com and can how do they follow you uh, you and i know each other on twitter is it also uh instagram facebook twitter are all alc guitar i'm on youtube aaron lc guitar and um spotify i i built a studio where i am right now i built a little recording studio last summer mm -hmm. at my after my last live concert of the summer last year and recorded two albums for my new lullaby project. This is a project I've been commissioning lullabies from composers since about 2007 and have premiered over 65 and from 10 different countries and 12 tone, microtonal, quarter tone, polyphonic, tonal, stuff with white noise, pieces you shouldn't hear the end of because you should be asleep, Adam and Eve, I mean, it's been a fun wow. project. So I, I, I see you've done stuff like John Cage. Yes. yes. Uh, and by the way, you are not the first guest who's been a John Cage guy. I have a friend named Greg Pernhagen who is an opera singer and he sang his John Cage work and works with him regularly. Oh, see, he you two should see each other. Yes. I, I'm a, so in 2013, I arranged uh, a violin piano piece. I arranged the piano piece, for, piano part for guitar. It's called Six Melodies. It came out around the time of his string quartet. Beautiful. Anyone who says he didn't write a melody is just smoking crack. Because no, I actually listened to your John Cage stuff on your website. Oh. And it's very, I was like, is this what I'm listening to? Because I expected it just to be like uh, one note played right. over and we, over. We think of Cage as 1970s because that's when he became really, really famous. I mean, to the general public, but he wrote, 
he was an artist. He changed. And his early music the, on the album, John Cage Guitar, I have stuff when he wrote when he was in his early 20s. Um, and then I have stuff from his very, it's very lyrical music. So it is uh, six melodies, there's a violin guitar, there's a lot of guitar solos, dream. My favorite is In a Landscape, which is just a marvelous masterpiece. Mm. Um, you could use as, I always like to say that some people used it as like, to me, it's the fork where some people took it and went one way and the other people went to new age music. You know, it's like, right. oh, I can do that for 45 minutes. Whereas Cage was like, no, 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 we do that. We move. And then um, an arrangement of Bach Nal, which was his first prepared piano piece. And I arranged it for two prepared guitars. And when those came out, the violin guitar, I actually uh, auditioned Peters, liked the recording I did of it, and they said they'd publish it. So it was the first official uh, publication for guitar. And then people bought it, which was shocking to all of us. And they asked me to do a collection of solos. So all of the solos on that album are released, are published by Edition Peters under guitar, uh, John K, uh, what is it? Uh, piano music for guitar. I, I, by the way, I have to correct myself. I, I yeah. looked it up because I had a little brain thing. My friend Greg actually works with Philip Glass. Oh. And I got John Cage and Philip Glass confused. Yeah, they're very different. Cage they really are. So I apologize. Glass was a was kind of reacting to Cage. They're from a different minimal, you know, some of the pieces I recorded, Cage is considered, they'll say it's like early minimalist, but minimalist wasn't even a term then. It's just very small amount of notes repeated in various guises, which you could say open the door to Reich. Uh, glass and the so on but glass and reich they were uh, a reaction to people like cage and feldman so it is a different world but it's music it, it, you know right right, right. Split hairs it, it's beautiful music glass is amazing and you know they're all they're all great there's a reason why people record them there's a reason why people go to hear their stuff uh, and there's a reason you know for some reason we live in a time that seems to want to tear down uh, professionalism. Uh, you know, we're living through this ridiculousness about vaccines. And you and I are like talking about everything. So this is fun. <laughs> but you know, like, carry on top. <laughs> like somebody like, you know, not everybody's an epidemiologist, okay? Like you're not gonna, like Google is not a substitute for my law degree. So when right. people are like, oh, I don't need to talk to you about this. I found out I can do this. And then they're wrong and it costs them a project or money, like, yeah. I, I, you know, so let alone somebody's life because of that. So there's a reason, you know, you may not like Philip Glass and that's totally okay. You know, there's certain music I don't like, but I don't crap on it. Like there, here, something I learned, uh, it was something I saw in the West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows. And there was a conversation between two people and one said, you know, this person's the Beatles to your person's Herman's Hermits. And kids, you're just going to have to look up Herman's Hermits. And if you don't know the Beatles, stop this podcast now and go listen to something. Ask your parents. I don't know what to tell you. But anyway, so Herman's Hermits, what, what they, the guy said, about, hey, don't knock Herman's Hermits. It's hard to get on the charts. And it's a funny joke, but the reality is Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits were great pop music. And yeah. that is, they got on the charts for a reason. And it's hard to do. 
You know, the people who are, I met Aaron Copeland when I was a kid, true story. My father introduced me at a concert I went to. I know, I shook Aaron Copeland's hand. That's awesome. And, right, and whether you like Aaron Copeland or not, you know, listen to Fanfare for a Common Man and don't be moved, I don't, I, you know. Or, but my point is, you don't have to love things to appreciate them. Right. So if, yeah, if someone's listening to this and they're like, I'm not that into classical guitar, why don't you please give a listen to Aaron or any, seriously, you yeah. might discover something new about yourself. And if you don't, that's fine too. Exposing yourself to things is not a bad thing. All right, well, and, I'm sorry. Is, and we're running out of time, so I, I you're, exactly, you're spot on. And when I would play John Cage in a concert, I always knew who the musicians were because they would shake, oh no, here comes Cage. And then they would come up to me afterwards and go, I didn't know he wrote that. It's kind of like Stephen King wrote Shawshank Redemption. You know, people don't realize that people can do different things. And you don't have to like everything. That's one reason I did the Lullaby Project. I found most audiences didn't want to listen to contemporary music. They were intimidated. They didn't understand it. Oh, I didn't study music. And my whole point is, well, you know, you don't have to study music. It's a lullaby. It serves, you know, you can disagree and say, I don't agree with this aspect of it, but it's a lullaby. And you shouldn't, who's afraid of a lullaby? And on the flip side, I say to composers, you know, you grew up writing for piano or you want to write for orchestra, but here's the guitar. You're intimidated. I'm asking you to write a lullaby. I'm not asking for a fugue or a sonata, a three to five minute lullaby. The only rules I say are how many, what the string tunings, you know, max amount of string changes. Right. And it has to be beautiful. That's it. But, by the way, before I forget, sometimes knowing too much about something can ruin it for you. Yes. Uh, I, I found that to be true with some filmmaking stuff. Like, uh, uh, and sometimes it's just an indication that it's not your thing. If you're starting to think about, wow, I'm noticing the camera work here. I'm no, you know, then, then maybe the film isn't sucking you in. Same with music. Maybe it's not your thing. If you're like, that's interesting. He keeps going to one and three, one and three. And then on the fourth, he goes to four and then back. It's like, maybe, maybe this is you not know, yours. Too, you're, too, you're, you're, you're listening it's a good way to listen, but there's many different levels of listening. It's like eating with food. You know, you can either just appreciate it or you can sit there and deconstruct it and go, what the heck? You know, there's this oh, restaurant. Uh, I think this restaurant, I, you, you might have heard of it. Uh, I think it's called Juana La Loca in Madrid. Oh, well, this is okay. So I'm stopping you because I'm the host. So Aaron, one of the reasons why I love Aaron is because when my wife and I went to Madrid right before the pandemic, I had posted something about where's a good place to eat in Madrid. And Aaron made this recommendation for this tapas place. Now there's lots of tapas places in Madrid, but this one particular place stands out above all others. Now that wasn't just what he said, that was my experience. We ended up eating there three times in a week, which is ridiculous. For all the restaurants there are in Madrid, we went three different times. I can't explain to you people because you'd have to taste it. There's it is something so good. There's something called a tortilla, which is not what we think of in Mexico, but like it is a Spanish made thing, which is basically eggs and potatoes. And Spanish onions. Spanish but, it's, but to say that is, does yeah. it a disservice. If no, you just bad. have that there, which is the gold standard of tapas, in my opinion, oh my you will then go, oh, I get it. This is where Jesus works. And I, then. 
you know, my wife and I were talking about like travel post pandemic. Mm. And I, I only know a couple people in Madrid. They're not close friends. I'm like, but we could go to Madrid just to go want to want a la loca. And we both were like, yeah, that would be a worthy trip yeah. to, to go there for two days and eat two days worth of food. I, we ate so that restaurant, I can still taste it. That is what blows my mind. They did sushi stuff there that I'm like, what are they doing with sushi? But they made these little sushi sushi sandwiches. I, I'm going off topic on that stuff, but my it. wife and I also love to travel and eat. Italy, the reality is Madrid's lovely, but Italy wins. I, I've been to well, Sicily, I've been to Florence. Have you been to I, Sardinia I, yet? No, we almost went. You're when you really? do, I will put you in touch with a chef who we we still write back and forth to each other, only meeting for a week in 2008. I was there for a festival and I couldn't find a good place to eat. I was there with my wife and we're walking and someone said, try this restaurant. We went, we ate, we came back for dinner. Wow. And they looked at us like, you're back? I said, yeah, we're back. And the chef came out. He had he was a chef all over Europe, Stockholm, Berlin, London. And he, why are you back? I said, because you're the best meal we've had in three days. We ate there for five days. Yeah, and musicians know He just came out and he said, what would you like? I said, whatever you cook for me, I will eat. And we, we still pen pal to each other. I'll send him, you know, uh, uh, maple syrup or something from Boston. I don't send them any of the baked beans, any of that crap. You know, we don't do no. that. Um, and he'll send me a cookbook or, you know, noodles and, oh, it is amazing. There is nothing quite like eating in Europe. I mean, yeah. really, the, this is the one thing that uh, I had a guest at our house from Japan and he had lived north of Cambridge in Arlington for two years with his family. He was doing stuff with the medical centers and I said, how did you do it? And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, well, how did you live food-wise? He goes, we never ate out. Not, I think we ate out three times. And I don't know, honest, I hate to be mean, but you guys don't know what food is. And he was no. from Northern Japan. And we start talking and we, because we go to the farms. We, we have a French household and, you know, I take espresso very seriously. And Same here. You, you, we're very similar. In yeah. Brooklyn, we have some places. I have. I can walk to one of probably six or seven espresso places. But we have some real Italian restaurants where they fly in the, uh, it's not mozzarella, what do you call it? Uh, it's, it's wetter than mozzarella. It's mozzarella, but it's wetter. I'm forgetting what it oh. is. But, but they fly it in from Puglia every week. Like, so it's real. Like, uh, uh, you know, we have some of those things because it's Brooklyn and, you know, yeah. that. When you come to visit us in Brooklyn. Yes. You will play for us and we will yes. take you to dinner and <laughs> you will find the, the places. My wife still loves you a lot <laughs> for that recommendation. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. Yeah. Um, is there anything that we didn't get to, which is everything, but is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? Um, well, food, let's see. We do an Airbnb and we serve great coffee and espresso from Italy and bread from France. And you do an Airbnb in Dorchester. Yeah, I'm we going have a to Victorian to house and we have a couple rooms and it's actually been 
probably one of the brightest spots of the last, you know, six, eight months is we've, I've had friends come to concerts who stayed at our Airbnb. I'll be in Germany. Aaron, you remember us? We stayed there. And we I might stay with you. I'm not kidding. I would love that. It'd be great fun. I, I know our discourse around the table would be probably two or three hours and get nothing <laughs> done that day, but that would be a wonderful day. Wow. So besides that, you know, I have some recordings coming out. I, I do have a newsletter that you can sign up for on my website, alcguitar.com. And listen to music. You know, it, I, I like to, to tell people, you know, who are very progressive and uh, in their, you know, they want their money going to good places. Music, if you're listening to Spotify or others, fine. But listen to artists who are not just being force-fed to you. Go to uh, concerts. If, uh, yes, Support if, symphonies. If something irks you and your brain goes, wait, what is happening? That's a good thing. We are out of high school. You're allowed to be questioned. You're allowed to answer. And you're allowed to have a new experience. And it won't hurt you. It's not wasted. That That's my... There's my oh, Aaron Larger Kaplan, thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? I appreciate you. Uh, I just, you're, you. you're a great guy. Thank you so much thank for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Eric. And sometimes we'll talk about some legal stuff. Sometimes. Cool. I always have a great time on my own show. And I hope you do too. Aaron is such a fascinating guy, a brilliantly talented musician, and obviously raconteur. We could have talked for hours. We will probably talk for hours in the future. Um, maybe we'll do another episode together. Um, would you like to continue to get this uh, podcast all the time without even thinking about it? Subscribe wherever you get your wonderful podcasts. Review us wherever you do that, too. We'd re really appreciate that. Um, you can also leave me comments, questions, what have you. If you go to www.isthatreallylegal.com, there's a place for you to do that. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you're taking care of other people in your life. Wear a mask, get the shot, do what you got to do, okay? And uh, we're going to get out the vote. We've got lots of things to do politically, too. We'll get to that in future episodes. In the meantime, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.